0: Reflections on the Gospel of John, narrated by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum, Part 1. I'd like to begin with a reflection on some of the lines from T.S. Eliot. Eliot uses the image of the yew tree in several of his poems in the Four Quartets and in Ash Wednesday. And for Eliot, I think the yew tree is uh, it's a, it's a multifaceted symbol, but I think it's the, the living tradition, the tradition of those who have gone before us. He says, for instance, in Little Gidding, not referring explicitly to the yew tree, but I think it's relevant, he says, What the dead had no speech for when living, they can tell you being dead. The communication of the dead is tongued with fire beyond the language of the living. And the yew tree, I think for Eliot, is also this living tradition which is regarded, as Eliot's understood it, regarded by the modern world as moribund and passé, but that he strove to return to and to call attention to because he regarded it as tongued with fire. That's a marvelous image, you know, about the image of the of the uh, Holy Spirit, the inspirer. So this this, uh, language of the dead is beyond the language of the living, and the modern world has pretty much found it to be so. Uh, But as Eliot strenuously uh, insisted, it is not irrelevant to our world. As a matter of fact, it is supremely relevant, uh, and our plight is that it has become inaccessible to us. And I think that's what he explores in greater length in Ash Wednesday, which is essentially his conversion poem, as he himself was being drawn back into uh, the tradition. And in that poem, he speaks of the silent sister. The silent sister is more or less the hovering spirit uh, that that hovers over the uh, movement of the Christian revelation through history. And he says, the silent sister, veiled in white and blue, between the yew trees, bent her head. This is in response to a kind of abyss that separates the modern world from this tradition. So the silent sister goes and takes up her stand in that liminal place between the past and the present world, and the the modern world has no access to the past, no access to this language tongued with fire. And so the silent sister takes her stand there. And she does not try to speak. She's not as, as silly as I am. She simply stands there and makes the sign of the cross. Eliot says, She bent her head and signed, but spoke no word. But the fountain sprang up and the bird sang down, Redeem the time, redeem the dream, the token of the word, unheard, unspoken, till the wind shake a thousand whispers from the you, And the wind, of course, is the spirit again, the panuma of biblical inspiration. So here's the gesture of the simple sign of the cross. The, the fountain springs up, the birds sing down, and now we feel this impulse redeem the time, redeem the dream, the token of the word unheard. The word is still unheard. And in Ash Wednesday, Eliot, as we'll see in a few minutes, Eliot refers specifically to the Gospel of John Prologue and this language of the Logos. And he says it is precisely that to which we are deaf in our world. Absurdist means to be deaf. That is to say, an absurd existence is is an existence deaf to this... To what? To what? We live... Eliot is saying in this poem, we live in absurdity because we cannot access the language tongued with fire. And so we piddle around. <laughs> but then he says, we live in a time between dying and birth. That is to say, we live in one of these liminal states, stages of human history and human existence in the ontological sense. And so the voices that, we, that sh- are shaken from the yew tree by these momentary uh, visitations of grace drift away after a while. They come and they go. This is the night, you know, the, the, the wind blows where it will. And so Eliot says, when the voices shaken from the yew tree drift away, let the other yew be shaken and reply. And he spells that Y-E-W, of course, but there's a pun. What I'd like to think we do here is approach the literary and scriptural text that are rumored to be tongued with fire and uh, to perform in their presence the gestures of faith and the acts of interpretation in response to which the wind might shake whispers from the yew and to be ready when these voices shaken from the yew tree drift away to let ourselves be shaken and reply. Now, the Gospel of John, Francis J. Maloney said that, quote, John is like a magic pool in which an infant can paddle and an elephant can swim. (laughs) There are not that many ideas in the Gospel of John. Uh, But the author of the Gospel of John, and we don't know who the author is, but I will refer to him as John, um, creates symphonies out of these few ideas. It's a very theological idea. Gospel. It was recognized at, from the very beginning as a, as a different kind of gospel from the other three, which are called the synoptic gospel. And it came into being later than the others, and it came out of a community that was more isolated and more sectarian than the others. Uh, there's, there is a link between the Gospels of Mar- Mark, Matthew, and Luke and they relied upon one another to to very in various degrees, uh, whether there's a dependence of 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 John on mark is is argued by the scholars, probably there is, but it's very, very lightly uh, the dependence is, is a is a minor one uh, It's almost assured that God, John had to have a gospel in order to know there was such a thing so and it looks like there may be some dependence on mark but. It's an entirely different gospel, written late in the first century, probably in the 90s, by a community that regarded itself as isolated, both from the uh, Jewish world that had, uh, had at that time regarded the Christians as heretics to be shunned, and by the Jewish Christians uh, sent, whose church was essentially centered in Jerusalem and who had, the church which had grown up around Peter and James the, the brother of the Lord and so on. So there's a t- tremendous polemic going on in this gospel between the this community and the others outside of this community whether Christians or Jews who by as this evangelist sees it who have yet to really come to grips with the deepest meaning of the of the Christ event. And he has set out to try to s- rectify that uh, situation with the other Gospels. The first Gospel, as you know, begins with the baptism in the Jordan. Mark's Gospel begins with the baptism because, in tr- in truth, we know nothing of Jesus' life prior to that. The Gospel of Matthew and Luke, because it was understood at the time that to tell the, the story of a great one, you had to begin with uh, the the lineage the, the miraculous birth and childhood and so on and so forth. This was all part of what had to happen. And by reading scriptures uh, and so on, these infancy and, and, uh, and maturation, you could call them narratives, were constructed by Matthew and Luke uh, to satisfy that uh, felt need at the time. So you get Matthew going back a genealogy back uh, to Abraham you get uh, Luke talking about the, uh, the, the, the Annunciation, the Visitation, uh, John the Baptist, uh, and so on. Beautiful stories, really marvelous stories in both instances. John's Gospel proper begins, as Mark's did, with the baptism in the Jordan. But he appends to it, before he gets to it, uh, to, the, to that part, he appends a hymn that has been reworked, probably reworked twice, Probably this was a hymn to the pagan or I should, Greek pagan idea of the Logos, and I will talk about that in a few minutes. It had been reworked probably by Jewish uh, thinkers or mystics to be a hymn to uh, the, the wisdom figure in the Old Testament uh, who we find out in Wisdom and Proverbs was there at the beginning with the Creator. Uh, so this was a hymn that had been reworked by Jewish Uh, religious imagination and now John reworks it in order to understand the Logos as Christ. So, what do we have in this? We have, in the beginning was the Word. That is to say, if Matthew Matthew and Luke took it back to Jesus' conception or to his genealogy, John takes it back to the beginning of the world. In the beginning of the world, at the moment of creation, was the Word. Well, that's just an example of the boldness of this gospel and the scope of its assessment of the meaning of the life uh, and death of Jesus. He uses the words from Genesis. In the beginning, God created. And how did God create? God created by saying things. God created by... God said, let there be light. God said, God said, God said. That's how creation comes to be in the Bible. And the Logos, the Logos is the Greek, obviously you understand that, the Greek uh, translation. The Hebrew for that Greek word is dabar. The, word, the Hebrew word that it really, that it really translates is dabar, which is the word of the Lord, but a word that has power, that has effects, that changes the world by being spoken makes the world but changes it by being spoken the 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 logos is translates the word for the prophetic word the dabar is the prophetic word. You spell that you the word dabar d-a-b-a-r but that's a transliteration it's okay. the hebrew you know the The word of the Lord in the prophetic tradition is always contending against the hardness of hearts. So, for instance, in First Isaiah, we have, "...hear the word of the Lord, make justice your aim, redress the wronged, hear the orphan's plea, defend the widow, come now, let us set things right, says the Lord." So this is the dabar, the word of the Lord, speaking on behalf of those who are wronged and shunned and cast out and maltreated. It comes to set the world right, as Isaiah says. In a sense, the word breaks the silence that nobody knew existed. The prophetic word has a disenchanting power. And suddenly it causes those who didn't even notice the widow and the orphan and the etc., 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 to notice them and to redress this lack of notice that existed before, this hardness of heart. On the other hand, the Word causes those who are its bearers to suffer. Jeremiah says, after speaking the words of Yahweh faithfully, He says in a moment of of, uh, dejection, You have seduced me, Yahweh, and I have let myself be seduced. Some exegetes have suggested a four-letter word for that seduced in order to really get the power of it. You have seduced me, Yahweh, and I have let myself be seduced. You have overpowered me. You were stronger. I am a daily laughingstock everybody's object of contempt because I have spoken your word. The word of Yahweh has meant for me insults and derision all day long. End quote. Jeremiah. This is what I get for that. Speaking on behalf of those who have been left out because of the hardness of the heart of the people, I have become one of those left out. Well, that's the Old Testament Hebrew version of the word that the author of this gospel is saying is has now been incarnated by Christ the Crucified One. Now, I want to return now to this question that I mentioned earlier, the question of us being uh, immune to the impact of this word in our day. And I want to uh, quote a little Passage further, two more passages in uh, Eliot's Ash Wednesday as an incantation about the situation we live in in our day, a kind of, if you will, epistemological uh, prison that we live in. Epistemology is just how we come to know things. Uh, and I think what Eliot is saying is that we have become so immune to this, uh, the revelation summed up in in John's Gospel that uh, we, we just simply do not know what is happening to us. So Eliot says, and the light shone in darkness. It's an explicit reference to the prologue to John. The light shone in darkness and against the word The unstilled world still whirled about the center of the silent word. These two lines I want to return to as a kind of mantra. Against the word, capital W, the logos, the unstilled world still whirled, as in a circle, about the center of the silent word, capital W, the logos. The logos remain silent in our time because we're impervious to it, we have no small w words for it, and I'm crazy for trying to come up with a few. But it is still at the center of our world, but our world is whirling around that silent word without comprehending it or knowing what it's doing. And the next line in the poem from Elliot is a quotation from Micah from the Good Friday service Uh, from the prophet Micah, O my people, what have I done unto thee? In other words, the modern world is doing to the word what the the mob did to Jesus. It is expelling it from its vocabulary and its cognition and its assessment of what is what. It is expelling the, the very word that teaches us about the expulsion process. And then Elliot goes on. Where shall the word be found? This is why we're here today. This is why we've come here today. (laughs) We've come here to ask ourselves, where shall the word be found? Where will the word resound? Not here, says Elliot. There is not enough silence. Not on the sea or on the islands, not on the mainland in the desert or the rainland. for those who walk in darkness, both in the daytime and in the nighttime, the right time and the right place are not here. No place of grace for those who avoid the face. No time to rejoice for those who walk among noise and deny the voice. We're too busy, we're too noisy, there's not enough silence, there's too much noise, and we... Uh, there is no grace because we avoid the face. The the radical verse in the prologue of the Gospel of John is the word was made flesh. It's the summation of John's Gospel. This is the radical point that John is trying to make. The entire biblical revelation is contained in the life death and resurrection of this one human being. Human being. Human being. That's what John's saying. And Eliot says, there's no place of grace for those who avoid the face. No, because the incarnation is the scandal. It's a scandal an even more outrageous scandal than the scandal of election for the Jewish people, which was itself a scandal. You know that little funny little phrase that people use, and I use it, you understand, with no no derogatory sense, that funny little poem, how odd of God to choose the Jews. How odd of God to choose... This is what... Paul found when he began to preach to the Gentiles. How (laughs) odd of God to choose a hanged man. So you say, what is the Bible about? If this man's life death and resurrection is a summation, as John says, of the entire Bible, what is the Bible about? How is it that we can say we've been saved by a hanged man? Well, we're impervious to it because we studiously avoid the face and avoid the voice in favor of uh, the noise and cacophony uh, of our of our world by reinterpreting the logos John is reinterpreting the entire Bible, but the Bible he understands to be the true history of the world, so he 's reinterpreting the entire world. Uh, my teacher in many respects is a at least uh, in these areas, is a man named René Girard, and he has some interesting things to say about the uh, the prologue to John, and I'm going to quote some of them today, but here is one of them. He says, quote, Pascal writes somewhere that it is permissible to correct the Bible, but only by invoking the Bible's help. That is exactly what we are doing when we reread Genesis and the whole of the Old Testament and the whole of culture itself in the light of these few lines from the prologue to John, end quote. It's a reinterpretation of everything. More radical reinterpretation than we can realize because we're impervious to the word. We read it and we don't get it. Now, I did a very quick... couldn't be called a survey. I did an allusion or two to the Logos or the Daba, the word, the prophetic word in the Old Testament. But I think to to get a better sense of what John does when he speaks of the Logos, we need also to see how John uses it in a later place in the gospel itself and how it was used in Greek, in the Greek philosophical tradition. First, I want to go to chapter 8, of John's Gospel, and, I, and of course we'll spend a little more time on this when we actually get to it, but I'm going to, so I'll go over this very quickly. In this discourse, Jesus is talking to those who believe in him. But believing in him is not enough. In a sense, you could say they merely believe in him. And he says to them, if you make my logos your home, if you make my word your home, my logos, your home... You will indeed be my disciples. Let's say not just mere believers, but disciples. You have to make this Logos your home. Now what's the difference between believing the Logos and making it one's home? So he says, If you make my Logos your home, you will indeed be my disciples. You will learn the truth, and the truth shall make you free. You can't learn the truth by learning of the Logos, Believing in the Logos, thinking about the Logos, affirming the Logos. You can only learn the truth by making the Logos your home. And if you learn the truth by making the Logos your home, you will be free. And that's what the Gospels are about. You know, um, Mon and Albright, who translated the Gospel of Matthew, said if you want to translate the word Gospel into modern English, you have to use the word Freedom. And that's how Paul used it. This is about freedom. You want to be free? Step right over here. That's what Paul said. You want to be free? So it's about freedom. And the those who hear this say to Jesus exactly what we as moderns say to him. What do you mean, free? I'm already free, thank you. (laughs) They say, look, we're children of Abraham. We're not slaves of anybody. We're free. And Jesus says, I know that you have descended from Abraham, but in spite of that, you want to kill me. Now you say, wait a minute. Did he change the subject? Now he says, you want to kill me. Where does that come from? You want to kill me because my logos has not penetrated into you. Now does this mean that if the logos has not penetrated in us, we want to kill somebody? What else could it mean? He says... What I, for my part, speak of is what I have seen with my father, but you you put into actions the lesson you learned from your father. People critique it, it, gender politics is is about to suffocate us. I have to say that as a white male, I'm sorry to but I feel that it's unbelievable. And, this talk here of the, the Father, to understand what Jesus is talking about when he talks about the Father, he's de... To, to use a fancy philosophical word, he is deconstructing patriarchy. When he uses Father, he is destroying the very patriarchy that the moderns think that he's, that he's resuscitating. He says, look, when you call someone your father, you confess to a whole array of of alliances and loyalties and so on, ethnicities and nations and da-da-da-da-da, and Jesus says, phooey. You see? Who do I call Father? God himself, that's it. And the rest of this stuff is, is not, is, is simply behaving according to this other Father, which will end up turning us into murderers. I kind of got off on that. I, I wanted this first... I'm thinking not of you because we are all friends, most of us, but I'm thinking these people are going to hear this the first time. I I thought to myself today, Gil, I sat and said, look, Gil, don't say anything that's politically incorrect because get to the politically incorrect stuff in the third or fourth tape, you know? Anyway, that's, so that's that part. And so Jesus says... You're doing what your father, what you learned from your father. Do you know why you cannot take in what I say? It is because you are unable to understand my logos. Exactly what Eliot said of us in the modern world. The devil is your father. And, and they said, well, wait a minute. We thought it was Abraham see, and Moses. And Jesus said, No. The devil is your father, and you prefer to do what your father wants. He was a murderer from the beginning. He is a liar and the father of lies. Now, you know, so now we have two things. We have the first line of the prologue, which says, In the beginning was the Logos. And we have the last line of this discourse, which said, In the beginning was the liar. Who is also a murderer and the father of lies. Now, this gospel is admittedly a dualistic gospel, which presents some problems for us. It presented some major problems for the community out of which the gospel came. The community fell apart within a decade after the gospel was written, precisely because of its dualism. It presents some problems. But there is something to be learned from the dualism of this gospel. And I think here it had, there's something appropriate about the, the, the logos, and the, fa, the and the beginning was the logos, the prophetic word was there at the beginning, but also there at the, you see when Jesus says you your father was a murderer from the beginning, if somebody is a murderer from the beginning that ha, that means that the, the that the, the beginning was a murder. How could you be the murderer from the beginning if the, if that's not what happened at the beginning? I want to argue that that's what happened at the beginning. You, Jesus has said, y- because you don't abide in my logos, you don't inhabit my logos, you just circle around it and think about it and affirm it and believe it and, or reject it or whatever it is you do. But it doesn't matter. You can affirm it, reject it. The, the other thing that Eliot says in Ash Wednesday, of the, the, he says, we'll... Uh, he hopes that the silent sister will pray for those who chose and oppose. <laughs> for both those who chose and oppose, because they're both outside of it. You see, it doesn't matter whether you believe it or deny it or de- unless you make it unless we make it our home, it will not reveal to us the truth and it will not set us free. That's the logo. Now, what's so strange here is all this talk about murder and lying and violence. It shouldn't be at all strange to us. What's strange is that it's strange to us. In the Acts of the Apostles, Stephen is giving a sermon, so to speak. He's, being, he's, he's arraigned before the Sanhedrin, and, and they're condemning him uh, on false trumped-up charges, and he, begin, he gives them this long sermon, which is a summation of salvation history, and he points out to them how... Uh, the, the nature of this history is uh, one failure after another, and he makes and he reaches his culmination. Uh, he says, "What you haven't seen is your own violence. You haven't seen your own violence." And he s- sums up this way: "You stubborn people, with your pagan hearts and pagan ears." Now he's talking to. He's talking to the. He's talking to the Sanhedrin. He's talking to the upright religionist of his day. And he says, you have pagan hearts and pagan ears. You are always resisting the Holy Spirit just as your ancestors used to do. Can you name a single prophet your ancestors never persecuted? He says, in the past they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, and now you have become his betrayers and his murderers. And at that, they literally, to prove his point, he said you have pagan hearts and pagan ears, they stop up their ears with their hands rush upon him, take him outside the city and stone him to death. Like John, Stephen understood that the crucifixion was the light of the world and it was revealing, as, as is said in the Gospel of Matthew, that which had been hidden since the foundation of the world. It was revealing what had been hidden since the foundation of the world. It was revealing the truth about the father of lies and the murderer from the beginning. Robert Hamerton Kelly puts it this way: "The word of the cross." Interesting that he would formulate it that way. "The word of the cross," that's the voice, that's the voice shaken from the yew tree. The yew tree, the cross was the yew tree, by the way. Um, in one legend, you know, the yew tree was used as the cross was was made of a yew tree. Hamerton Kelly says, "The word of the cross is therefore the kind of blunt and honest talk about the violence that religion and philosophy cover over with ritual myth." and rhetoric so the cross leads to the realization of the role of violence in the history of religion and culture this i think uh... is the revelation of our time and i think uh, gerard is a renee gerard is a major figure in bringing this revelation to our awareness it is there so explicitly in the text that one cannot believe that it is just now coming to our awareness but better late than never. How strange that we're just now realizing that the Bible has to do with violence, religion, and truth. I think it has to do with violence, religion, and truth. And, well, most people have thought that it had to do with truth, or at least the, those who thought of it piously thought it had to do with truth and with religion. Uh but not many people thought it had to do with violence. Or let's put it this way, those who thought it had to do with violence shut it and went someplace else. So those who saw that it had to do with violence gave up on it, and those who still thought it was a wonderful thing didn't notice that it had to do with violence. And we live in a time where we have to bring those two things together. It's about violence, religion, and truth, because we are in the grip of the thing it's about. And if we and and we think that it's irrelevant to, to the condition that we live in, it's supremely relevant. In the Bible I have there sixteen hundred and seventy four pages. The first homicide, which is really a fratricide, occurs on page four. Uh, and thereafter it, the, the thing is a wash in blood. A wash in blood, and it reaches its denouement by Christian standard at a ghastly public execution, and then it finally culminates in apocalyptic violence or scenes of apocalyptic violence. What's strange is that it's just now dawned on us that this is about violence, that this book is about violence, about violence, religion, and truth. In this morning's New York Times, again, I tried to get through it without, you know, but there it was. Yesterday, 200 people killed in Bombay in a series of bomb explosions, almost certainly set by religious Quote, religious extremist another headline serbians shell muslims another headline the texas uh, cult which is where the, the this armed camp you know of uh, of uh, branch davidians are holding off all these federal agents abortion clinic doctor killed uh, yesterday or the day before uh, by an anti-abortion uh, protester the world trade center blown up a week or two ago uh, pr- almost surely by religious extremists, quote unquote, or at least religion, religious passions were involved in that uh, in, in that attack. Another headline this morning's paper: Arab and Israeli violence intensified, and so on and so forth. There are just so many pages in the paper, the religion and violence and truth. It is surfacing in our time. And the text that will help us think about it and get to the heart of it, I think, is the biblical text. So John's Gospel, if we read chapter 8 in connection with the prologue, you realize that John's Gospel is talking about two logoi, plural of logos. There are two logoi operating in the world. Two... Words, two forms of coherence, this would be a good way to put it, two patterns of coherence, two two ways of making meaning, or let's put it this way, one way of discovering meaning and one way of making meaning. The father of lies, the murderer from the beginning, and the and the logos, who is the incarnation of the prophetic word? Well, so that's so. Now we have New Testament, Old Testament uh, versions of logos, and that, but but for a minute, I want now to return to the Greek logos. Logos was very central. Well, lo, the term logos was many people think the central term. In the Greek philosophical tradition, and I'll quote somebody to that effect uh, in a minute. What I'd like to do right now, if I can exercise the discipline to do it, is to just read to you a couple of pages from this, uh, this book that I just finished on this subject, and I'm reading it because it's quicker. It took me a long time to boil it down to two pages. And if I tried to do it uh, extemporaneously, it would take me a lot more than that, and so i 'd like to do that uh, also i 'm finding you know when i two years ago when I stopped teaching and started writing, I had a terrible time shifting from teaching to writing as a pattern, and i 'm having a little bit of the same problem going the other way I, I, because i've i 've written on some of these subjects and I tend to want to just write it out again. And so in this case I'm indulging I'm indulging that. But now this is in chapter 14 of the uh, existing manuscript and if it's totally intelligible that probably means the first 13 chapters were unnecessary. <laughs> <laughs> so it may be a little bit out of context um but I will just try to read it uh the uh I I think I think you'll. I I begin with an analysis of Heraclitus, which, by the way, this is going to seem very strange and dull and dry, but I hope to show that it's worth our attention. Uh, Heraclitus was a pre-Socratic philosopher, or what you might call a proto-philosopher, whose dates are 535 to 475 BC. Heraclitus offered a theory of cultural origin strikingly different from the myths of creation that were a familiar feature of the pagan cults and mystery religions of his time. Now, remember, John is saying in the beginning was the Word. And the pagan cults and mystery religions of the, at the time of Heraclitus said, well, in the beginning was some kind of wild intrigue by the Olympians or some kind of, uh, uh, some kind of uh, orgy of violence, the dismembering of the, of the monster, as in Marduk and Tiamat, and so on. These kind of wild stories of creation. Uh, we could recognize imme- immediately, for instance, in the Marduk and Tiamat story, the story of the father of lies and the murder from the beginning. It's a, it's a mythologization of violence. Nobody sat down and thought, oh, well, let's have a story about dismembering somebody. You don't... The, the dismemberment happened and then the story happened. Uh, and so John says, well, there's that, and then there's the logos. Well, here's what Heraclitus says. Um, For Heraclitus, culture began with human violence, albeit a violence presided over by some mysterious organizing principle. Heraclitus sensed that violence behaved in accord with an enigmatic logic of its own, which he called its logos. This logos or logic of violence made it possible for violence to both create and destroy. Heraclitus wrote, Quote, this is one of the most famous of the fragments of Heraclitus. Violence is the father and king of all things. He has shown some to be gods and some mortals. That is to say, violence creates the sacred. It creates the distinction between the profane and the sacred. He has shown some to be slaves and others free. That is to say, violence creates social differentiation. Everything originates in violence, Heraclitus says. I'm still quoting. Violence is justice and all things both come to pass and perish through violence, end quote. An untold number of mythological creation stories allude unmistakably to culture-founding violence. But credit goes to Heraclitus for being the first to conceptualize the phenomenon of generative violence. I'm going to argue in a minute. won't be any surprise to most of you that culture begins with violence. Uh, For Heraclitus, the logos of violence was an ordering principle that was generated by disorder itself. For him, once the logos was in play, it turned chaotic and destructive violence into socially stable and hierarchically differentiated social systems. This was the absolute miracle. And for Heraclitus, it's still something of a miracle. Heraclitus bows before this awesome reality in much the way that we bow before evolution in our time. It's such a profound idea that he can't think thoughts outside of it. And so he bows before it in exactly the same way we do with evolution. Heraclitus saw that however random and lawless it is collective violence nevertheless develops according to certain recognizable patterns patterns which could not be traced to any cause or any conscious intention on the part of those participating in the violence heraclitus appears to have seen that it is the it is violence of the most lawless and random kind that is the most likely to conform to the mysterious ordering principle he called logos in other words there there was this violence and then suddenly something would happen to the violence And lo and behold, without anybody orchestrating it, it would become order. And it was just this total mystery. Heraclitus saw it. He's the only person who saw it, by the way, as far as we can tell. And he saw it and he thought, what a profound mystery. Okay. In his History of the French Revolution, H.G. Wells provides what amounts to an illustration of Heraclitus' notion of the Logos. Wells writes, quote, the National Convention met on September 21, 1792 and immediately proclaimed a republic. The trial and execution of the king followed with a sort of logical necessity upon these things. Quote. What made it logically necessary for the founders of the republic to behead the king was the logos of violence. Logic obviously comes from the word logos. It was logically necessary because of this logos of violence. The logos of violence first formulated in non-mythological language by Heraclitus. For Heraclitus, the logos functions as culture's mysterious law of gravity. Even after account has been taken of its more sobering implications, what I have just said can be considered the good news, both in the colloquial and in the biblical sense. The Bible generally and the Gospels specifically contain unmistakable warnings, however, and these warnings cannot be separated from the redemptive and emancipating claims these texts make. For Heraclitus, the Logos functions as culture's mysterious law of gravity. As inscrutable and mysterious as it is, the Logos of Heraclitus is a philosophical concept, not a myth. A myth is a story that covers up the violence. A myth, of, a myth will tell us that about Marduk and Tiamat, but it will always tell us in a nice way that doesn't disturb us. It's only when we try to mythologize witch burnings. As I say, as soon as we try to mythologize things after the Christian revelation has had its impact on us, that we're disgusted by the process of trying to do so. But if we have these myths that antedate this revelation, we can still convince ourselves to read them in that naive way. As inscrutable and mysterious as it is, the Logos of Heraclitus is still a philosophical concept, not a myth, but it functions mythologically within the philosophical tradition. The significance of the last observation comes to the fore when we realize how pivotal Heraclitus' concept of the Logos became in the history of philosophy. In his study of the pre-Socratic... I know this seems dry, but bear with me. In his study of the pre-Socratic philosophers, Professor Milton Namm points out that Heraclitus' concept of Logos lies, quote, at the core of Alexandrian speculation. That is to say, at the heart of philosophy itself. Even more to the point is Nam's observation that with this concept of the Logos, Heraclitus, quote, begins the differentiation of systems of language from the events to which they refer, end quote. A differentiation that has come to be the defining characteristic of the entire philosophical enterprise. The differentiation let me just try to unpack that the differentiation between the violent events to which the words refer and the words. And if we can make that differentiation, we can engage in the discourse, we can use those words in a discursive way, and we can generate all kinds of insights and philosophical theories and, you know, a whole the whole philosophical Panoply can be generated from those, those formulations once we have performed the initial cleansing, which is to separate from them the violence to which they originally referred. That's what Logos does. And it gives birth to philosophy. And philosophy in our time is dying. The business of myth has always been to generate a system of language removed from but not entirely separated from the violent events to which the words refer. Heraclitus was contemptuous of conventional religion and its myths, but his major achievement was to use a kind of oracular, quasi-mythic, quasi-rational concept for the purpose of doing what myth had always done before. Namely, to put a screen between the words and the violence to which they obliquely alluded, and thereby he made philosophy possible, and so on. Now, I'm going to. I want to come back to Heraclitus in the modern world because Heraclitus, the Her- the Heraclitan insight, is has has come to the surface again in our time. But before I do that, I'd like to do a little uh, exercise on using Girard's uh, Rene Girard's uh, work on the origin of culture. I know from having given talks and classes and so on uh, on the subject that at this point people begin to think, uh, wait a minute, I thought we were going to talk about whatever it was, in this case the, the Gospel of John. I thought we were going to talk about something that had to do with love and forgiveness. And, and, and we are. We are. <laughs> but what, what, what we need to discover is the, is the revelatory power of this thing we're investigating. It is not some nice little pious thing that's going to, you know, make us. It is something that is changing the face of the earth in an unbelievable way. And and so I think we need to come to grips with that. And then we will discover that it has this deep spiritual meaning. But I think before we can feel that meaning at really the deepest level, we have to realize the scope of this thing. And so that's why I'm going through this little exercise this morning uh, to get that, in a sense, on the agenda for us, and then we can proceed to see what the Gospel says to us about uh, how we live each day uh, with ourselves and with each other. What is explicit in the passage I quoted from chapter 8 of the Gospel of John and more or less explicit in Heraclitus' formulation of the beginning of things, is violence at the origin of, dot, 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 what else? Human culture. Violence at the origin of human culture. I now want to try, as quickly as I can, and knowing that I will cause at least as much confusion as I dispel, I want to try to summarize um, the uh, insights... Of uh, Rene Girard on this subject, which I think are, which I think are profound, and the implications of which are uh, almost uh, impossible to uh, to uh, gauge at this time, but they're enormous. I have to start with something called mimesis, which Aristotle called mimesis and Plato called mimesis, which is imitation, which is where Girard starts. Uh, And I will try to return to this before we finish, if I can get there in time, before all of you abandon me here and I have to sit here and talk to myself. Um, Aristotle pointed out that we humans differ from animals in our greater aptitude for mimesis. We are imitative creatures. Otherwise, we could not acquire the the language skills, the social skills, etc., etc., that it takes in order to be humans as we know human existence. We learn from each other. We mimic and we learn. And this is what makes us human. The higher primates are also intensely mimetic, but not the way we are. Therefore, they have no language in the ordinary sense we mean by that. And they have uh, rudimentary, what we regard as rudimentary uh, social skills compared to what uh, we humans have developed, etc., etc., The thing about mimesis is that it generates... This is Girard's, I think, important discovery, but it's not entirely Girard's discovery either. You know, Girard's a very funny fellow. He spends about half his time trying to prove that he's not original, which is really quite an amazing thing, you know, in our world, because most of us spend so much of our time trying to do the other thing. Anyway... Uh, so he goes out of his way to show how unoriginal he is. And, for instance, uh, uh, Plato has uh, has grave suspicions about mimesis. You see, he's 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 uh, he's concerned about those the spreaders of mimesis. That's why in, in the Republic he would want to uh, to get rid of the poets because they tend to infect people with certain mimetic things. So there's a there is a suspicion of this mimetic phenomenon uh, very early on and the suspicion arises uh, for good reason because the n- the nature of mimesis is such that it generates conflict for instance the thing that's so shocking to us moderns is to realize that desire what we call desire is mimetic that we learn our desire it shouldn't be any more it shouldn't be any stranger to us than that the bible is about violence it's so obvious does anybody wake up in the morning thinking I'd like to have a CD player? No. You see the ad for the CD player. <laughs> you see what I mean? Mimesa, the our desires are awakened by something that shows us this thing is desirable, which is somebody else's desire. I always use the sale table thing. You know, you go to the sale table, there's one of these things. You don't care about it until the other person shows up and reaches for it. And then you think maybe it's at such a good price after all and so on. Well, these are, th- these are hilarious because we laugh at them for the same reason that we laugh at a, a lot of things about ourselves, is it's very close to home. We realize what phonies we are. Well, in the, in the uh, proto-human situation, right at the beginning of the hominization, you can imagine a creature reaching for an object. And we may reach for an object because of appetite an object of of food or sexual gratification or whatever, could be appetite. Appetite, there's nothing specifically human about appetite. What is specifically human is desire, and there's a difference. Desire is metaphysical, not physical, and it's generated by the desires of others. There's always a model. And the model, because there's only one object to be had, becomes immediately the obstacle. So now there's competition for this one thing. Imagine this little, I'm doing it in the most economical way. So the acquisitive gesture awakens the desire, is a, is a sign of desirability, awakens the desire in another, who then makes an acquisitive gesture. Still a third sees two acquisitive gestures, therefore much desired, and makes an acquisitive gesture. And now you have several hands reaching for one thing. And so you have conflict. Out of this, Girard theorizes, comes eventually pandemonium, rivalry, violence, uh, and as we know from you know, children who say, I wanted it first, no, I had it first, it gets crazy. In the original human, pre-human situation, it gets crazy, pandemonium, because acquisi- the acquisitive desire or the acquisitive gesture is so contagious. We don't need to tell Madison Avenue that. That's what runs this enormous economy of ours, the contagiousness of acquisitive design. Conflict is generated, and then the question is, and this is why Heraclitus was so stunned by it, the question is, how could order come out of that? It seems impossible. There's nothing, we're talking about the creation of culture. There's no cultural form to come in and pull the fat out of the fire. People are at each other's throats. There's no Matt Dillon to walk in. There's no 911 number to call. What are you going to do? It just goes cr- And as we know, violence is the most mimetic thing of all. When somebody slaps you in the face, you may have read the thing about turning the other cheek a million times. It's very hard to do. <laughs> reciprocating violence is, is not reciprocating. It's almost impossible. It's tremendously mimetic. So you get a situation that looks like it, there's just no end to it. And here, I think, is Gerard's important discovery. Accusatory, an accusatory gesture at that moment of, of, of pandemonium and of frenzy in which everybody is terrified of everybody else. That's important to keep in mind. The terror that's, that's sown through this chaos, this crisis, an accusatory gesture at that moment of, in, of social breakdown is more powerful than the acquisitive gesture was in the beginning, and it is replicated with blinding speed. So however long it might have taken for this social cauldron to heat up to the boiling point where everybody is at everybody else's throat, it takes no time, relatively speaking, for it to be, for the, a, an accusatory gesture to be mimicked and mimicked and mimicked and mimicked. And we know from studies of mob psychology to this day that it's stunning the speed with which a mob can turn on one figure or shift from one figure to another unanimously and achieve a unanimity. And that unanimity is achieved at the beginning of a culture at the expense of the victim on whom all turn. And culture begins with that esprit de corps or that camaraderie and, in, and at the center of that little, the first group, uh, the first real social unit, at the center is a dead body, a corpse at the center of the esprit de corps. At that moment when the mob first experiences its camaraderie, the camaraderie replaces the terror, the pandemonium and the terror, so quickly that it's numinous. That is to say, it's experienced religiously. It is the most natural conclusion to draw is that some uh, numinous power has brought this miraculous communion together. And then the myth will, will then explain how that numinous power did that. The one we just killed is a god or is a demon or whatever... But it, it it turns that violence into the sacred, so the primitive sacred is, the is, is violence that has been mythologized and ritualized, and made into the made into the uh, uh, the stabilizing force of cultural life, and that's the way culture is born. And myths of origin, which so often refer to the dismembering of the monster and the killing of the so on, are an attempt to tell that story uh, in a way that is edifying. In a way that is edifying. And rituals, which are always sacrificial, ask yourself, why is it that all primitive religion engaged in blood sacrifice? Well, Girard has shown, I think, beyond a shadow of a doubt, as far as I'm concerned, that these rituals are the are the ritualization of an original murder. And they are performed in order to try to reconvene the camaraderie that was born of that murder. And primitive religion is nothing more than the attempt to sustain with ritual myth and prohibition that camaraderie through time. So there's a short course on Girardian uh, theory of the birth of culture. It's a real shocker. But it, it shouldn't be a shock, so much of a shocker when we pick up the paper and see people trying to regenerate culture all over this planet right now in essentially the same way. So the sacred is born of that culture-founding violence, the primitive sacred. And the primitive sacred is, is running amuck in our world. It, can no longer, it no longer has the power to convene culture, but it still has the power to, to sow pandemonium. So we have this terrible dilemma. Heraclitus said it would, ki- it would it both creates and destroys. It no longer has the creative power because the gospels have destroyed its creative power. The gospels uh, uh, create a community who proclaim the victim to be their lord, and that proclamation begins to deconstruct the creative power of the primitive sacred or the or the Heraclitan logos. The Heraclitan logos or the primitive logos. The logos of violence can no longer create culture, but it can still destroy it, and that's that's the world we live in. Now I interrupted my exposition of uh, Heraclitus in order to insert that because I now, but I now want to pick that uh, exposition up and return to Heraclitus in the modern world, because uh, the Heraclitan logos. Which is the logos of violence it's the logos that the Johannine Jesus calls the father of lies and the murderer from the beginning that's the Heracliton logos is alive and well in our world, and unless it can be it can be confronted by the Johannine logos or the Christian logos we're sunk. so I want to return to uh, Martin Heidegger, who is a philosopher who has who, t- who took it upon himself to resuscitate the Heracliton Logos because he agreed with Nietzsche that if we let this Christian thing run its course, it will destroy culture. It will destroy our ability to restore the great virile values of classical culture. And he's right. Nietzsche was right, and, Her- and, and Heidegger became, I think, persuaded of the rightness of Nietzsche's insight. Heidegger defined the Heraclitean Logos as, quote, the primal gathering principle. How do we come together? The historical setting for, he- for Heidegger's most explicit exposition of this subject was a series of lectures he gave at the University of Freiburg in 1935 as... Hitler, as Hitler's power was, constell- was, uh, was consolidating itself in Germany. And what Heidegger had to say must have been music to the ears of those who were consolidating that power. He argued that Heraclitus was right, that conflict or strife was the binding together power that we had in the world and that its name was Logos. In other words, violence behaving in accord with its own internal logic produces togetherness. And you know what? We all know that. It's another one of those... You know, we moderns are like, we hit ourselves in the forehead with the palm of our hand and say, duh. You know, we've known that. It's common sense. Violence generates camaraderie. We just have never thought it through. And now it's incumbent upon us to think it through. There's a kind of cohering logic to violence that we're perfectly aware of. And Heidegger was determined to explicate that. He wanted to break the silence. In a way, we have to take our hats off to Heidegger because he had a certain kind of Panache, I must say, because he said, I'm, let's, let's cut the BS and let's come down on this issue. Nietzsche had said, it's either Christ or Dionysus, I choose Dionysus. Well, maybe emboldened by that choice, Heidegger said, let's cut out the philosophical shilly-shallying and get down to what's, what this thing is saying. And it's, it's awesome to see it. And it's right there in Introduction to Metaphysics. Heraclitus had declared, quote, "...if you have heard not me but the Logos, then it is wise to say accordingly all is one." That's the message of the Logos. All is one. Gerard would amend that and say, unanimity minus one. There was one person left out of that unanimity, but we're not talking about that one because that's the corpse at the center of it. You see. That's the one whose presence in the economy of things is erased. Even though Heidegger clearly understands that in the first instance, logos is the principle of violent camaraderie and not speech, nevertheless, he says that Heraclitus' reference to hearing the logos means that the logos involves, quote, something audible. This something audible, however, is obviously not ordinary speech. Heidegger had nothing but contempt for ordinary speech. He was so sick of ordinary speech he was sick of the modern world because it was it was nothing but fatuous gossip and and empty opinion he wanted some kind of other speech and it's terrifying to think what he really wanted but anyway it was not ordinary speech he was after he was after something else nor according to Her- uh, according to heidegger was this logos a uh, philosophical discourse he was also sick of philosophical discourse because it was it was backing and filling all the time and never came to anything. Now, so then I ask these rhetorical questions. What then could it be? What is audible but neither discourse nor ordinary speech? What is both audible and opposed to discourse? According to the fragment of Heraclitus that Heidegger quotes, regardless of what words it uses or whether it uses words at all, this audible anti-discourse has a predictable message. The message is all is one. What is it, second rhetorical question, what is it that is audible but opposed to discourse and whose message is all is one? The answer is the cry of the mob at the moment of unanimity. That's the father of lies and the murderer from the beginning. Heidegger writes, There can be true speaking and hearing only if they are directed in advance toward the Logos, Only where the Logos discloses itself does the phonetic sound become the word, but those who do not grasp the Logos are unable to speak. Now this, Heidegger is impossible to read. Uh, So I understand. But if we saw what he is saying, he's saying we must find a way to speak the Logos in our world or it's going to fall apart. Only by speaking the Logos can the phonetic sound become the compelling word. But those who do not grasp the logos or or who are not grasped by it are not able to speak it. That is to say, you have to fall under the spell of the logos in order to speak that word that convenes the crowd, which is exactly what Hitler was doing as Heidegger was giving these these lectures, precisely what Hitler was doing. And I think I, I can, Heidegger was too smart a man not to know that, that what he was talking about was what was happening at those Hitler rallies. In other words, exasperated with gossip and idle chatter of the modern world, Heidegger longs for the loudspeaker and the chanting crowds. He says, we can hear the Logos truly only if we are its followers. The man who is no longer a follower is removed and excluded from the Logos. He says we have to allow ourselves to fall under its spell. And then he says Logos requires violence. Like Nietzsche before him, Heidegger sensed how dependent humanity was and had always been on structures of sacred violence. And like Nietzsche, he felt a return to these structures was imperative and that biblical faith stood in the way of this important revival. Though he was not alone in doing so, this most original and brilliant of philosophers provided the intellectual flying buttress for German National Socialism. With Heidegger, therefore, philosophy finally declares itself to be, in Girard's words, quote, the last final refuge of the sacred, the primitive sacred, the mystification of collective violence. Okay, I'm going, now we're so far out on this limb you're thinking, how are we ever going to become holy by reading John's Gospel after all of that? But I want now to return to the other logos. John says in the beginning was another logos. The logos that we always exclude in order to attend to the Logos of violence. We excluded it and, and gave our fidelity to the father of lies, the murderer from the beginning. But there was, John says, another Logos at the very beginning. In Aeschylus is Agamemnon. Agamemnon is, is uh, becalmed and can't get to the Trojan War where his fame is to be uh, created. And so he consults the, the oracles and he's told that he must sacrifice his daughter. He's offended the goddess and he must sacrifice his daughter. So he brings her out to sacrifice her. And he uh, instructs, instructs the priest to, to bind her and gag her. And the priests who are doing this know her from the court. I'll read this passage. Well, let me read it and then comment upon it. Her father spoke again. To bid one bring a gag and press her sweet mouth tightly with a cord, lest Atreus' house be cursed by some ill-omened cry. There is a logos that has to be silenced if the sacrifice is to work. It is the logos of the victim. Rough hands tear... Reading uh, from Aeschylus again. Rough hands tear at her girdle, cast her saffron silks to earth. Her eyes search for her slaughterers, and each seeing her beauty that surpassed a painter's vision, yet denies the pity her dumb looks beseech, struggling for voice. For often in old days, when brave men feasted in her father's hall with simple skill and pious praise, linked to the flute's pure tone, her virgin voice would melt the hearts of all. They had to suppress their empathy for her. They actually knew her. This wasn't some Spartan slave they were sacrificing. This was the princess, you see, And she's struggling for voice, and they're struggling to keep the voice gagged. This is the other logos that's there at the beginning. And if they let that voice out, what happens? This is what happens. This is the predict, it predicted in one line Atreus' house will be cursed by some ill omened -omened cry. The whole cultural enterprise will be, the, 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 the linchpin, pun intended of the entire culture will be uh, withdrawn and it will all collapse into reciprocal violence, recriminating violence, which is exactly what's described in the later passage. If we let her voice be heard, here's what happens. If we let her voice be heard and continue to behave in the way we've always behaved, that is to say with acquisitive desire, mimetic desire, here's what happens. Bloodshed bringing in its train, kindred blood that flows again, anger still, unreconciled, poisoning a house's life with darkness, treachery, and strife, wreaking vengeance for a murdered child, which is exactly what's happening today in Bosnia. In Palestine, in South Africa, in Northern Ireland, in Bosnia, etc., etc., in India, all that happens unless that voice, that logos, is silenced. And at the moment when... Iphigenia sacrificed in Aeschylus' drama. The chorus, which is reporting on all this, speaks as one voice and says, "The rest I did not see, nor do I speak of it." In other words, they turn their face at the last moment, so as not to notice it. Which is the mythological gesture par excellence: is to look. The word "myth" comes from the word "mew," which means to close the mouth and close the eye and not register what just happened.